Welcome. My name is David Thorburn. I'm a professor of literature and the director of the MIT Communications Forum. I have a couple of brief things to mention before we get going on today's forum. Uh, we've already announced the dates, May 13th through 15th, 2011, for the next Media in Transition International Conference that will be held here at MIT. Uh, there will be information posted on our website about it. I hope uh, uh, many of you will consider attending. I might note that our that in media and tra uh, this is a, a a conference that the F communications forum and the comparative media studies program at MIT run every two years, and it's a kind of exciting international event. About half of our Papers are delivered by people from countries from not not, Amer not by American citizens, but by, by Europeans and by folks from Asia. We even have some representatives from from Central and South American countries. So it's a very uh, global event, and we confront major questions uh, having to do with the with the. Uh, uh, intellectual and cultural problem of moments in cultural history and in social history when new media enter a society and cause disruption. So we try to talk about older versions of this problem as a way of trying to illuminate the circumstances that we're in today uh, with the digital, so-called digital revolution. These conferences have become uh, um, very, very, very popular among especially uh, younger scholars in a range of field, fields, but they are also attended by media practitioners, by policy people, by uh, people from the from the um, uh, from, uh, from, from from the political realm, uh, and I urge you to consider attending. I might note also that in Media in Transition six two years ago, our, one of our speakers, Alison Byerly, was a, a participant, and uh, after the event, some of you might want to ask her about her experiences there. Um, the call for papers for that conference will be released shortly, and if you watch the Communications Forum or Comparative Media Studies websites, you'll get f full information about it. Finally, uh, as an announcement, this, this November, the uh, Communications Forum will, will be the co-host uh, uh, of two uh, civic media forums in collaboration with MIT's Center for the Future of Civic Media. Uh, those are listed on, on, our, on our website. I hope many of you will think of attending. And we'll, we'll make time to attend. Our, our, uh, our speakers today are, are uh, both especially qualified to address this broad and vexed topic, the humanities in the digital age, and I want briefly to introduce them and, and then start the conversation. Our format is, will be our normal format. There will be roughly 45 minutes or an hour of conversation amongst the panelists, and then we'll open the floor to conversation, discussion, argument with the audience. So I hope you're preparing to be your usual eloquent and passionate selves. To my far right, Alison Byerly is provost and executive vice president as well as professor of English at Middlebury College in Vermont. She received her BA from Wellesley, her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of numerous articles on Victorian literature, culture, and media. Her first book, Realism, Representation, and the Arts in 19th Century Literature, was published by the Cambridge Press in 1998. During a recent year of leave, she uh, spent some time as a visiting scholar at Stanford University, where she completed a book entitled, Are We There Yet? Virtual Travel and Victorian Realism, which is forthcoming from the University of Michigan Press. 
And as I mentioned earlier, she last visited MIT as a participant in 2009 in the Media and Transition 6 conference where she gave a paper, a very interesting paper, entitled What Not to Save, the Future of Ephemera. I hope the humanities don't fit in that category in a few years. <laughs> Steve Pinker, to my immediate right, is, the Harvard, is, a, is Harvard College professor and Johnstone family professor of psychology at Harvard. He's also taught at Stanford and spent 21 memorable years at MIT where he became my uh, friend as well as my colleague. His research on visual cognition and the psychology of language has won prizes from the National Academy of Sciences, the Royal Institution of Great Britain, the American Psychological Association. He's received six honorary doctorates, at least at last count, uh, and um, he's won many teaching awards. While he was here at MIT, he was legendary as a powerful and uh, charismatic teacher, and he's won many prizes for his books, which include The Language Instinct, How the Mind Works, and The Blank Slate. He's currently honorary president of the Canadian Psychological Association, and chair on the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary. He also writes frequently, as many of you surely know, for places for such uh, uh, publications as the New Republic and the New York Times. He has been named, at one point, Humanist of the Year, so he has special qualifications to speak to this subject. <laughs> and. Um, he has been listed in Foreign Policy and Prospects magazine as among the world's top 100 public intellectuals. I think he's among the top five public intellectuals myself. Uh, and he was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world today. His latest book is The Stuff of Thought, Language as a Window into Human Nature. So two very distinguished panelists who I'm sure have a great deal to say about our topic. I thought we'd begin by, by, by uh, worrying very briefly about what, hum what we mean when we use the term the humanities. About uh, 15 or so years ago, more than that, I guess 20 years ago, it was just on the begin just the very beginnings of the digital age. I remember because I was still using a computer that had floppy disks. I gave a lecture, a talk, a, a, a keynote talk at a, at, at a convention of, of media, media practitioners and broadcasters. Uh, and there were a number of other academics there, uh, but they were in fields like economics and business. And there were many other distinguished speakers there from a, from a range of, of practical fields. But I was the only one from the humanities. And when I got up to give my talk, I thanked them for and said I was honored to be there and indicated that uh, I was especially happy to be there because I was the lone humanist on the panel. And I heard some grumbling, and I didn't quite pick up on what was going on. Continued my talk, and I, I, I'm usually very attentive to my audiences, and I, I, I couldn't understand why a kind of emanation of hostility was rising out of the audience. And after I, and of course you can guess what it was. After the talk, one of my colleagues on the panel said to me, "You know, you made a bad mistake. They thought you were saying you were the only human being on in the on the panel." <laughs> So, so that's a part of my That's part of my motivation for asking our two panelists to begin by defining the humanities. What do we mean when we say the word humanities? 
I don't mind starting because as someone who teaches at a liberal arts college, I find that the humanities are often conflated with the liberal arts as one of those sort of generic terms that people toss around without necessarily um, defining very precisely. But one of the things that struck me as I was thinking about um, how we might approach the topic is, is to recognize that quite often these days the humanities is defined in terms of what it is not. It is not practical. It is not useful. Um, it is not uh, something that will necessarily get you a job. And most of the things that... Uh, that appear in public discourse as definitions of the humanities, I think reflect a sense um, that it has been a very um, rich and capacious term in the course of uh, academic history and has sort of blended into um, a large series of topics that sometimes are used um, in public discourse as a way of just characterizing things about academia um, in general rather than characteristics of particular disciplines. Um, But recognizing that the humanities typically is defined as um, the study of what it means to be human, um, the study of what it means to ponder the deep questions of humanity, um, it's interesting to reflect on the fact that the different disciplines that make up the humanities, which might typically include language, literature, philosophy, religion, um, art, all are are disciplines that uh, fundamentally tend to focus on individual thought, individual action, um, individual and specific art objects and texts in a way that makes it um, harder to determine how those disciplines as as broad fields fit together. And so I think that um, when we talk about the humanities now, we tend sometimes to look back to um, a sense of tradition in each of these fields as a way of orienting ourselves. Um, But in fact, part of what I think is interesting about the conversation we'll be having today is recognizing that the term itself uh, needs to be shifted and updated in a way that recognizes how it's evolved over time. Well, as a, as a former humanist of the year, I want to also clarify that, the, that misunderstanding because there's another sense of the word humanist, which basic, it's basically a kind of sanitized, polite term for an atheist, but an atheist who, <laughs> contrary to the stereotype in much of this country doesn't believe in you know, murder and child abuse and all those horrible things that people associate with atheism. And so it was kind of a rebranding. If you're a humanist, or sometimes preceded by secular, it means you believe in you know, morality and niceness and all kinds of good things, but not as derived from, uh, from a, a, a supernatural deity. Um, so, and in fact, I often get a lot of confusion when uh, talking about hu- humanism or being a humanist because I think it is sometimes referred to as a scholar in the humanities. Um, now, in terms of the, the definition, I was trying to, uh, uh, after I got your email with the preview of the questions, trying to think what would be a good definition of the humanities. And obviously, there's not going to be a precise one because many of the fields in the humanities shade off into fields in. Uh, that are not humanities, philosophy, for example, with symbolic logic and mathematical logic, political science with uh, uh, sociology and other social sciences. But um, the best that I could come up with is uh, the study of the products of the human mind. And I don't think that fits exactly, but I think it, it's, it's pretty close because it includes languages, um, all of the arts, um, Theories of previous thinkers, such as philosophers, political theorists, maybe even history, if you think of human behavior as ultimately coming from the, the uh, human mind. Uh, so that's, that's my best stab at it. I, I guess the only thing I would add is I, I've, I've been very influenced in, uh, in thinking about this in a theoretical sense by Clifford Geertz's writings. And he, he makes a great uh, uh, 
to do about the difference between what he sometimes calls the interpretive sciences as against the empirical ones, and in his desire to wrest anthropology into the interpretive camp, uh, he essentially defines the humanities as uh, uh, as those uh, scholarly endeavors that, in, that 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 rely in a fundamental way on interpretive behaviors, uh, interpretive act, rather than laboratory research or the kinds of empirical research that we sometimes associate with the social sciences. Another way, another way to think about that contrast is to think of it not just as a matter of interpretation but of judgment, that so much of the humanities comes down to making judgments of value um, that are predicated on a different sense of value from practicality or utility, but aesthetic value or moral value or some more complicated sense of value. I'd like to pick up on that, though, because it strikes me that that is, I, mean, I think it's probably an accurate characterization of what a lot of uh, scholars in the humanities would say is there. Their, their mandate, but it is it can be questioned, and in fact, one could uh, <clears throat> certainly within anthropology, there are many anthropologists, and not just the stones and bones physical anthropologists, but the cultural anthropologists, who would say they're making hypotheses that are uh, empirical. They could be true or false, and they can be and ought to be tested. And I think one could certainly philosophers care very much about. Uh, Truth. It's not just a kind of criticism, but they argue with each other as to who, what positions are sound and internally coherent, what are accurate versus inaccurate readings of a philosopher. And even in, in literary analysis, one could say that many claims in literary analysis are empirical claims that, by the tradition of the humanities, have not been subjected to empirical tests the way hypotheses are in the social sciences and sciences, but, uh, but could be and maybe ought to be. So I'll, I'll give you an example. This is from Jonathan Gottschall, a uh, literary scholar who's been trying to integrate uh, literary analysis with uh, uh, evolutionary theory from biology. And so he came across a claim in a study of um, European uh, folktales that there is a most of the females are described in terms of their physical appearance. A lot of the males are described in terms of their uh, prowess. They're often sympathetic, attractive female protagonists and unsympathetic older female pr- protagonists. And the scholar was attributing this to certain aspects of patriarchal European culture as it had developed at the time. And he thought, well, uh, that's a hypothesis. It could be due to some peculiarity of early modern European culture. Another possibility is that there are certain inherent biases to the human mind, that um, uh, men are often valued in terms of their strength, women in terms of their uh, looks, and that might be a human universal. And so he went to an encyclopedia of, uh, of myths and folk tales. I think there were something like a thousand of them. Uh, and sampled the ones from Europe and the ones from every other culture, uh, coded them in terms of how often a female character was introduced in terms of her looks or her age. Likewise, male character, looks, age. Uh, Were the younger ones sympathetic or the older ones sympathetic, depending on whether they were male and female, and just did what a social scientist would do and concluded that this particular hypothesis was, uh, was false, that the the sex differences that were observed correctly in the European folktales were seen in folktales in every single culture. Now, whether or not 
he's right or wrong. It's a case in which he took a claim which one would think has a, some uh, responsibility to being either true or false. I think most of us, and even in the humanities, if someone said, well, is what you're saying true? Maybe there are cases in which the person making the claim would shrug, but I think a lot of the times they would say, well, it's true or compelling or you ought to agree with me or there are good reasons for it. As soon as you do that, there's no reason not to submit it to tests, maybe not as coarse as the one that Gottschall applied to the folktales, but it strikes me that this is actually quite an interesting and an exciting avenue for the humanities that would bridge some of the gap between the two cultures and wouldn't be that <coughs> um, hostile to the actual aims of humanists as they actually practice what they do, namely trying to say things that are warranted, true, coherent, um, have good reasons before them, behind them. One of the things that would be required in that kind of system would be recognizing that um, you, the sort of context you described consists of a larger data set that has to be used as the kind of framework for the analysis. And so much of literary criticism in the past has rested on um, the study of a unique and individual text, um, sometimes um, unfortunately absent of context, but sometimes sort of interestingly um, self-referential um, as a kind of analysis. And of course, there have been many um, literary theories that have come and gone that have had different attitudes towards what the appropriate contexts are. But in thinking about the way in which the humanities in general tend to privilege individual texts or individual, as you said, products of the human mind rather than sort of collective wisdom or collective data, um, the kind of shift you've suggested is the kind of thing that might be facilitated by the kinds of technological changes that make it possible to sort through lots and lots of different, say, literary texts in the way that people who are now looking at coding literary texts are able to do. Um, it wouldn't have been possible in the past for a single scholar to assimilate um, 20,000 pieces of literature of the same period and look for similar image patterns. You could do that now. I think there's a good argument to be had about whether that is or is not literary analysis, um, but it could be done and it would be more testable and provable. There, and, and we should. Be, I, I didn't want to over... Um, Steve's correction is helpful. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to oversimplify it. There's a tradition of a kind of empirical work in literary study going back... Uh, Forever, really. Uh, uh, when I was an undergraduate, they, they, one thing they were very big on was counting Shakespeare's images. And there were whole books written by people who, had, who literally would go through the plays and count up the number of times there were references to uh, nets or references to uh, uh, bloody knives or whatever. And then on the basis of this, these aggregated, this aggregated information, all collected before the age of the computer, incidentally. I mean, what, what, what scholars used to devote their entire lives to could be done in 15 minutes with a, with a search engine today. Uh, uh, so, that's interesting and significant, I think, for, for the way the human, uh, the, uh, certain aspects of what could be empirically checked in the humanities are, is now possible in a way that was not before the digital age. But these, uh, uh, and this is a fascinating and complex theoretical aspect of the whole problem of the humanities, we probably shouldn't get too deeply into it, uh, but my own impulse would be to say that the way I would respond to Steve's correction would be to say, yes, true, still the standard of, uh, for, for what's compelling or coherent or, quote, truthful in the humanities is the standard of validity, I think. Uh, I'm borrowing now from E.D. Hirsch's great book, Validity and Interpretation, in which he tries to distinguish between the forms of argument that humanists make as against the forms of argument that would be made in a purely empirical 
piece of work. Uh, and that what we can hope for is a kind of validity, which is based on evidence and proof, but it's, it never has the kind of absolute certainty that, a, say, a scientific experiment would generate. But again, this is, this is a, a, a very knotty question that is probably a, digr- a partial digression. Let, let me turn now to, to a, a, a broader issue and ask, ask our panelists to begin to comment on that. Uh, the call to the meeting uh, um, uh, per, per, was perhaps, <coughs> perhaps exaggerated uh, the, the uh, danger in which the humanities finds itself today. Uh, and it may well be that the discourse of crisis is a continuing aspect of our culture, that the humanities always seem to be in crisis, uh, some might argue. Uh, nonetheless, there have been some signs recently of something going on that, 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 that justifies our, 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 our concern for the for the uh, for the field, uh, one just to remind some of you about uh, uh, the nation of Iran has recently banned the study of humanities because they thought it was uh, uh, unhelpful to the health of the nation, um, and there was a, a quite elaborate article in the in the New York Times about this. Uh, there is now a great uproar going on in Great Britain over cuts in the humanities that, in, and in humanities programs that are so serious that many many many. Uh, Institutions of higher education are being forced to regroup in profoundly radical ways. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at certain kinds of statistical evidence uh, um, in the United States, for the United States at least, there's some evidence for the idea that things have not changed that much, at least over the last 10 years. Uh, I have some graphs that we actually could show, but I think I'll just summarize the primary uh, findings. Uh, if you look at, at a list over the last 10 years of doctorates awarded in the United States, there's a tremendous increase in the number of science and engineering doctorates. But the humanities doctorates, although they, 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 there have been slight declines, but essentially over the last 10 years, the numbers are relatively, are relatively stable. Now, this is not the only measure. I, I guess you could show it, Steve. Yeah. Uh, the first, the first uh, uh, just shows the difference. Science and engineering doctorates as against, as against um, uh, non-science and engineering. And you can see the non-science and engineering category, which includes more than just the humanities, is fairly stable. If we go to the next one, a very elaborate chart, uh, will be too difficult to read on the screen, but we can take a quick look at it. Uh, can you, it it's too small to read? All right, let, uh, I'll summarize this one. Go on, go on to the next one, Steve. I can expand it if you like. All right. Well, if you look, okay. So th- th- these are 10-year numbers, and they're interesting for that reason. If you look, and they're broken down by specific fields. If you drop down to the humanities, to Steve, near the near the middle, of the lower middle of the page, and went to the. It's just, let's see, it's just below education and health. Yeah. There we are. Uh, if you, uh, the total number, in 1998, total number of humanities doctorates, 5,275. Ten years later, 4,641. A decline, but not that much. English literature, 1,600 degrees to 1,400. Foreign languages, a pitiful 643 in 1998, but an equally pitiful, not different, 627 in, uh, at, at the end of the decade. History holding pretty, pretty stable, 946 10 years ago, 921 today, and so forth. So that what these, these numbers, what these numbers suggest is that if there is a crisis, it's a very slow-moving one, or the faculties in the graduate programs are not interested in the crisis, and, and, are, and this is maybe more likely, are continuing to produce PhDs who may not 
may not be bound for work in universities. Um, With that as a kind of background, um, is the question of the impending uh, uh, um, uh, diminution of the humanities uh, uh, more than just an ongoing discourse? Is there something more urgent or threatening in the current version that we're hearing? Is the advent of digital technologies related to current fears about the survival of humanities programs? Do you want to start with that or shall I? I I guess one observation I would make is that I think that in my initial remarks I was commenting on the way in which the humanities tend to kind of stand in for traditional fields in academia in general in a a kind of um, broadly uh, broad brush way and one one aspect of that that argument is a recognition that there's an inherent sort of aura of remoteness about the humanities Uh, the humanities is a field that studies the past and the very distant past um, and at a time when technology seems to be speeding things up and bringing information information to us faster and faster, I think there's a sense of um, the pace somehow of the humanities doesn't seem in tune with the times. And so without there being a specific critique of what the humanities is failing to do as a discipline, I think at times there's a sort of assumption that it simply doesn't meet the current needs of the current generation without um, there being a careful investigation of what aspects of what disciplines um, need to be changed. Yeah, I think I think there is reason to be concerned. The it could be that faculty tend to prioritize churning out new PhDs, and that's what gets protected. But I, I think what's also relevant would be uh, how many students are taking the courses, how many universities continue to have uh, vigorous programs in the humanities. And my understanding is that the enrollment, the undergraduate enrollments, um, well, I don't know if they've been going down in the last 10 years, but they were going down in the years before that. And, and it is, a, I mean, the, the nightmare scenario is that the, uh, that the humanities have been surviving on a general idea that to be an educated person, you can't not have some big dose of the humanities, but that if we, if there was ever a, a uh, disaggregation of the more practical aspects of uh, university education in the eyes of students and the humanities, then it could spiral downward. I mean, a very terrifying analogy would be newspapers survived because the uh, classified ads for, for mattresses and apartments subsidized the news and the editorials. Then Craigslist came around and disaggregated it. People could sell their mattress uh, for free on a website, and we all know what's been happening to newspapers. Steve just summarized the content of two of our previous forums. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So the question is, are uh, dollars and smart minds being uh, supported in the humanities as a kind of uh, spillover of all the kids who want to get degrees in business and engineering and law simply because you, it's always been the American tradition that you can't just get uh, an education in uh, a bachelor's degree in business without having to do some you know, 19th century novel or, or modern philosophy. Uh, if you have... The, at one end, the Phoenix universities nibbling away at students. At another end, uh, budget-conscious deans who are just looking at what brings in grants or uh, what's most popular among students. Could there be a kind of death spiral of the humanities as it doesn't stops getting cross-subsidized from the rest of uh, what we consider to be an undergraduate education? 
If I could add something, speaking as someone who's actually a college administrator myself and so often in the position of looking at the budgets of different departments and comparing them, it's absolutely fundamental to our system of education that that kind of cross-subsidy does take place because, in fact, it's just inherently true that some fields are much more expensive than others, that it is much more expensive to run a chemistry lab, but on the other hand, a chemistry professor is much more likely to bring in significant grant money. It's much less expensive to study the Victorian novel. All I need when I walk into a class is a copy of Bleak House, but on the other hand, if we have accept the general premise that, that Steve outlined, that education is partly contextual, that it's partly requiring you to learn not just the one thing you know that you came in to major in, but everything else surrounding it that provides an important intellectual context, then any disaggregation of different fields is inherently problematic. And so one of the things that's most disturbing about talks about the crisis in the humanities is the tendency to want to, to carve out different parts of either an undergraduate or university curriculum um, and, and pick out the ones that seem not to be thriving at any given time and, and talk about um, why they might need to be excised from the whole organic whole, that if, if you start um, breaking it into little pieces, you'll find that the kinds of values that are associated with different fields um, differ over uh, one decade to another, and certainly um, the budgetary impact is different. But once you start down that path, um, people like myself, provosts, you know, will start um, coming in and saying, well, this uh, department isn't as profitable as it might be, and perhaps this colleague isn't as profitable as he might be. And once you start that argument, I think it's, it's hard to shut the door on it. One implication of what both of you have been saying I think might be worth expanding on a little bit, uh, or at least this is an implication I hear, and I, I have some sympathy with the argument. Uh, is it possible that the, uh, the idea of the humanities we're talking about uh, is, if not uniquely, primarily American? Because it's certainly the case that, that undergraduate education in Canada or undergraduate education in China or undergraduate education in most of Europe is much more specialized than it is in the United States. This idea that, that uh, you come to university to sort of grow uh, is not uh, universal. Uh, is, <laughs> respond. <laughs> That's certainly the case, and it's one of the things um, that I think many would point to as a real strength of the American system. It's, it's, a, it's a strong distinguishing feature, and if you send students abroad, for example, for their junior years at almost any other country, they come back amazed to find that um, in your junior year, anywhere else in the world, you're studying nothing but the major that you began studying your freshman year, um, that you've been studying one field and one field very intensively. In some ways, what seems most surprising about that is that in a context where most undergraduates are not, in fact, going on to be professional academics and getting PhDs, but doing something else, it's quite amazing to me that in Britain anybody is allowed to spend four years studying nothing but a single field um, that may not, in fact, be the vocation that they've chosen. Um, so as an English major at a liberal arts college in America, you're learning lots of things in addition to English literature. If you're studying English literature for three years at Oxford, if you're not going to be an English literature professor, um, there might be other things that you'd wish you'd studied. <laughs> and I think it's even... Uh... In a number of other countries, it's even closer to the Phoenix University model where people just study things. They go to what they call going to university means basically getting education in, in business or maybe in law. Uh, I was surprised when I visited Poland that there were private profit-making universities in psychology, my own field, which I didn't realize could, could turn a profit. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> These are basically would-be psychotherapists, and they kind of went to psychotherapy school, and uh, it was private, and they were shareholders, and uh, they didn't learn uh, the 19th century novel or modern philosophy, and was, you know, they didn't seem to miss it. I think they should miss it, but, they, but and the fear is that is that a direction that the American system could go in if uh, 
people don't value the, uh, the humanities. I mean, I want to take it in a slightly different direction that I think is relevant to this, which is, uh, I mean, Allison talked about uh, the problem of partitioning off uh, the humanities faculty. And I don't know how the dollars work, but it strikes me that a lot of places, a tenured professor in the humanities in his or her 60s with benefits and retirement is pretty expensive, mm-hmm. um, especially if they don't bring in any grants. And so it, it is kind of a, a, a tempting target. And one of the ways that would both be, have the practical benefit, I think, of protecting the humanities, but also I think would be good for the humanities, is, is to integrate it more with the social sciences and, and sciences. And there's just so many, what I think of as, as tremendously exciting opportunities to do so, which would make humanities faculty um, uh, indispensable. I mean, already now, for example, I wouldn't go to a university that didn't have a strong linguistics department, which has traditionally been the humanities, simply because I'm a uh, psychologist of language, and even though I do experiments, I need to have good colleagues and people who will teach my students in uh, linguistic theory and history of languages. I wouldn't want to be in a place that didn't have a good philosophy department, because if I'm teaching on, say, consciousness, uh, the issues, including the scientific issues, were laid out by uh, philosophers. Uh, And those are cases where the humanities have blended into social sciences or sciences over the last 40 years. But I think it could happen uh, in in other fields. I mean, it's a commonplace that that's the way linguistics and philosophy works. But say in... um, You'd be restricted in the United States because there are very few undergraduate programs in linguistics. linguistics. That is true. There's only four Um, universities you can teach at. Lucky you've got a job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that could be... So the way linguistics has... Which is, I mean, it's still fragile, but it's made itself... Uh, a little more uh, less dispensable by being a field that people who study language scientifically can't do without. Uh, now that could, so, for example, what music theory I think has a lot to both give and take to auditory perception, and that's been starting to happen in the last decade. Uh, English literature, there's so many connections to the sciences of, of human nature. Um, consciousness. I mean, that's that's kind of what novels are are trying to simulate. Mm-hmm. Uh, cognitive psychology, theory of mind. What is the mental process by which we take other people's perspectives? Evolutionary psychology. What are the motives in human nature that excite people in all ages and all cultures? Uh, linguistics and poetics. Um, Jay Kaiser here at MIT has done very interesting work applying phonological theory to metrics in poetry. Uh, in uh, political theory, there are connections to um, both evolutionary psychology and uh, political psychology. This knitting together would, I think, for, attract to the humanities the kind of undergraduates who currently get excited about what they can do in these sciences and social sciences, but also it would make the disaggregation a little bit harder for deans because the people in the humanities would be integrally involved in the very, some of the very same research projects as their colleagues in uh, safer departments. 
Allison has suggested uh, that that uh, already that that the field of the humanities, because it's always sort of historical, backward-looking in a certain essential way, uh, has a somewhat different relation to technology than our neighbors in social science and certainly uh, in engineering and science. And I'm wondering if there are other aspects of this difference that we ought to address before we go on to what I think is more exciting, which is all of the, some of the really positive ways in which digital technologies and, and the possibilities that now are available because of uh, the, our digital culture, what they, how they're not just dangerous but enabling to the humanities in certain ways. And that's where I hope we'll go in a second. But do you think that there are further distinctions between the, our field's relation to, to technology that... I guess I would add that um, considering that that even the social sciences have become more data-driven in the last um, decade or so, and that, um, as Steve has pointed out, there are many possibilities for some of the humanities fields to move in the direction of looking um, to a kind of broader, more scientific methodology in collecting a, a wide range of information. There's certainly room for some blurring of, of boundaries, but I do think that one of the challenges in thinking about technology in relation to the humanities does have to do with thinking about the distinction between technology as a way of accessing information and technology as a way of, of sort of processing information and using data. Um, in, in a field like literature, most of the use of technology that's been most exciting really is text-based. It's just different ways of manipulating text. It's not using computers as processors. It's using computers as ways of um, either presenting text or presenting visual material or presenting um, aesthetic material differently. And a lot of those things have been very exciting. They don't fundamentally change the way in which we approach literature. Um, they present different forms of literature like hypertext or they create different possibilities for accessing literature that it might be hard to reach because of where it's stored, where it exists, how rare it is. Um, but I don't think um, most of the fields in the humanities have fully incorporated um, the possibilities of thinking about the ways in which they actually process information um, moving in a different direction. I think where you do see those kinds of potentials is in, for example, um, the growing use among historians of GIS um, uh, capabilities to figure out ways in which the sense of history that they're um, examining, say, in a particular um, geographic region can be uh, reconsidered visually in ways that they perhaps hadn't considered when they were looking primarily at primary documents, which is what historians typically have looked at. So I can think of historians whose work really has changed over the last decade because instead of simply looking at the words in actual texts, they're looking at um, a different way of conceiving of the evolution of a small New England town when you look at visual mapping of how the population has moved, for example, and, and really moving almost more into geography or economics. And so those kinds of changes in how we think about the information that constitutes our field, I think, is where we're just starting to head. Well, let's continue that. I mean, uh, uh, ways in which you think, uh, promising ways in which you think that the advent of these technologies can enhance and strengthen rather than endanger mm -hmm. our fields. Mm -hmm. I guess the other field I would see as, as moving in that direction in interesting ways is um, art history, where, of course, the, the sharing of visual information has been um, dramatically expanded by the establishment of visual repositories um, of, uh, of, of visual information that previously had to be accessed either through books that then had to be scanned and turned into slides or through actually going um, to museums and seeing the original works of art, which, of course, anyone would agree is preferable but isn't always practical for, say, undergraduates in a classroom. And so the fact that um, many art historians have been able to not only look at things that would have been previously inaccessible, but apply computer technology to scanning them, looking for parallels, looking at ways in which um, 
similar to the example we were thinking of, of looking at all of Shakespeare's plays and having the computer decide how many times a bloody knife appears, you can look at hundreds of Rembrandt drawings and look for all of the ones that are shaded in the lower right-hand corner um, by having a scanned computer do some of that preliminary work. That's not going to replace the kind of judgment you need to apply to whether that's interesting or significant, but it can certainly save you some legwork to have a kind of processing power. Um, And to me, one of the things that's interesting to think about is whether that will change the kind of privileging of the individual object that I mentioned earlier and turn it into a more broadly comparative, almost experimental network of data that one looks at. Um, That would really change, I think, the way in which most humanities fields have evolved, which is out of close study of particular texts, particular objects, particular paintings in great and loving detail, which is fundamental to each of those fields. But if that can be contextualized with a broader range of reference through being able to assimilate a lot of information more rapidly, that could be an interesting direction. Yeah, I was originally hoping to to, uh, give a demo of... uh, a uh, project that I've been peripherally involved with, but um, for legal restrictions, I can't show it just yet because it hasn't been publicly uh, announced. This is a project that does automated um, text analyses of uh, Google Books. Now, you all know that Google Books has scanned you know, gazillion books going back to the 1500s. And um, when it doesn't take much imagination to think that you could uh, search for text strings and see how they rise and fall uh, over the past few centuries. And as soon as I started to demo this, I mean, I just had the hypotheses that you can test that were uh, previously you might think are untestable. They're just, you know, influence, interest, uh, you know, dissemination of ideas. Well, you can actually see them in the percentage of books in different uh, eras that cite a particular author or a particular term uh, and so on. So, I mean, I immediately, I was reading a book by an intellectual historian, um, Lynn Hunt, um, who had claimed that interest in civil rights in Western history uh, peaked at two periods, in the second half of the 18th century, the time of the uh, Enlightenment, and then again um, after World War II, around the time of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so I just typed civil rights into... Uh, this program, and sure enough, there was a big peak in the second half of the 18th century and another peak uh, after 1950. Uh, I, and I mentioned this at lunch, as soon as I was able to run this, with, um, I was having lunch with a um, uh, uh, guest, Megan Marshall, a um, historian, literary scholar who's written, writing a book on Margaret Fuller, uh, um, wrote a book on the Peabody Sisters, is interested in Harriet Beecher Stowe, and my wife, Rebecca Goldstein, who's a novelist and philosopher, and they just about almost ripped the laptop out of my hands. They had so many things they wanted to test. Uh, Rebecca wanted to see, she was just writing about how the influence of Spinoza suddenly grew in Germany at a certain point in the 18th century, and she wanted to see if the mentions of Spinoza went up. Uh, Megan uh, had hypotheses as to the rise and fall of interest in Harriet Beecher Stowe and wanted to immediately look at the curve of how many times Harriet Beecher Stowe is mentioned. Uh, then when I, I've been writing a book on the history of, uh, of violence and all of these hypotheses that would seem just too squishy to be testable, um, I found myself trying to test. I mean, just to give you an example... There were a lot of, you could look through European history and there were an awful lot of really kind of stupid wars fought over 
it looks like nothing. I mean, they're basically pissing contests, but the kings would send, uh, uh, send soldiers into battle and people would die just because of, you know, who would salute whom or who would sit at the head of which table. And uh, that kind of thing plummeted, in, especially in the last 50 years, where um, least developed nations are very skittish about getting into war over questions of honor, glory, precedence, preeminence, prestige. So I, wanted, I was curious as to whether a word like glory, for example, probably doesn't have the same uh, you know, pulse-increasing uh, resonance today that it probably did 100 years ago. I mean, I wouldn't go out and put on a uniform and risk my life for national glory. I mean, it just doesn't get the blood coursing. But it probably did 100 years ago, much more. So I did a search for words like glorious, honorable, and indeed, they went, they, they plummeted. Uh, and in, in, just in contrast, all of us now have a, as a, a kind of crossover of scientific concepts into the mainstream discourse. We have ethological concepts that, um, that, that deflate and deconstruct um, honor. Things like um, alpha male, uh, testosterone poisoning, uh, pecking order, uh, pissing contest. All of them are attempts to say that what used to be considered inherently and unquestionably noble pursuits might just be uh, you know, symptoms of too much testosterone coursing through male hypothalamuses. Uh, and indeed, as glorious and honorable went down, things like you know, pecking order and alpha male and testosterone and pissing contest went up. Now, that doesn't prove that this is why we should credit the women's movement for fewer, for fewer stupid wars. And actually, I, do, I actually do make this argument, and there's a, this is one of my pieces of evidence. But that, that's the kind of thing that without tools like this would just be, well, you could say it, it's a good story, maybe you believe it, maybe you don't. Now, this doesn't prove it, but it does give a little bit of, of, of uh, teeth to it. And I can imagine that once this tool is available, the uh, humanities, again, it's not going to replace the deep, uh, rich interpretation of a single work, but to the extent that a work is interpreted in the context of some generalization, the era, differences between that era and other eras, differences between that culture and other cultures, you start to be able to teach them, thanks to these, uh, I think, well, at least in the future, these developments. So, so one, one implication of what you've been saying clearly is that the uh, uh, way in which digital technologies allow us to aggregate knowledge in a way that had never happened before will open up not just the humanities, presumably, but all, all fields. That's certainly uh, a powerful and, I, I think, compelling idea. Uh, but are, are there, are there uh, other ways in which we can think of the possibilities of digital technologies uh, as, as strengthening or enhancing the humanities. Be, be, I mean, what, what you're talking about, Steve, here is a kind of almost specific scholarly application. I have a scholarly project. I'll go to Google Books, so I'll test my hypotheses to see if I can find support. But are there other things we can say about... about uh, as some of my colleagues here at MIT, for example, have uh, work on projects in which... In which um, uh, 
uh, well, I'm thinking now especially about Peter Donaldson's Shakespeare project, in which he has collected uh, uh, a range of visual uh, uh, visual versions, uh, uh, video or film versions of Shakespeare plays uh, from all around the world. And what he can do then is is is, is juxtapose, let's say, uh, a single scene in Hamlet in. F- 13 or 50 different variations. And uh, apart from being a fascinating and crucial study guide, uh, presumably that sort of thing has a a much wider application than merely to Shakespeare. That that sort of thing also seems to me very promising. One thing I would add about that is that we've been focusing primarily on research, but of course if one thinks about teaching as a kind of introductory stage of research um, for students at an entering level, I think in some ways um, technology has changed teaching more than it's changed research for exactly the reason you're describing, that it's so much easier to bring richer materials into the classroom if you think about what it was like to try and show a scene from a movie 20 years ago just to illustrate a point in class, you know, the the sort of technological expertise needed just to do that um, was beyond anyone who was a film and media culture scholar. You know, an English professor like myself wouldn't bother. I can now teach a class in which I'm constantly pulling up websites, showing clips, um, bringing in DVDs, accessing a wide range of contextual information, and allowing my students to make a lot of comparisons between textual materials and visual materials and talk about um, not only uh, novels in relation to plays, but novels in relation to films, in relation to television episodes, in relation to other kinds of media, in a way that really broadens their understanding of literature as a form of media like any other. That simply wouldn't have been technologically possible 10 years ago, and I can see my own teaching and that of many of my colleagues having changed quite dramatically. What I'm also seeing now is, of course, the students have changed even more dramatically, and what we're presenting has changed enough that the kinds of dissertations that students are writing now clearly are very different from what they would have been a decade ago as well. And so I think the trickle-down effect on their own research when the students we are now teaching are writing their own dissertations and becoming researchers in turn, I think will be even more noticeable. It's an anecdote. When I was an undergraduate and I took the the art history, the kind of cave paintings to Andy Warhol type (laughs) course, um, the textbook was in black and white. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and so there's, you know, Titian, and yeah, and it's like, well, you know, take our word for it. Titian used some red. It's like, okay, well, I can uh, and and even today, of course, a, a good textbook like that, if printed in color, could be you know, could push the budget of a typical undergraduate. But then you have a, you know, an iPad or a, a, a laptop, and you can see it in color. And if I could just follow up on that with with another example, one of the things that you recognize then is that much more of what one does in the classroom involves working with the students one-on-one with the information in front of you, having allowed them to gather a lot of information on their own that you used to have to present in the form of a lecture. So that, for example, if I was lecturing on the Victorian novel, to use an example that Steve used, um, in the past I might have spent the whole first class doing background on the Victorian period. Now I can say, go to the Victorian web, which is a, a website that George Landau set up that's wonderful has all of the visual material I would have shown them. It has wonderful photographs of what people wore in the period. It has lists of all of the important political accomplishments of the period. And I can say, here are the five things I want you to look at. I'd like you to familiarize yourself with these basic cultural trends. Now let's talk about the topic of this particular class. And I saved an entire lecture and allowed them to do something much more interesting and interactive to assimilate information that I used to be the only source for. Now they can have that information in so many different ways that my role is no longer to aggregate information and present it, but to lead them through the analysis of the information um, rather than simply collecting it in the form of lectures. These are, these are uh, very positive things that we've been talking about, and maybe we can continue this sort of uh, 
positive note for a, for a moment. How about the way in which the uh, scholarly publishing and what you called in a note to me, the dissemination of information is changing because of digital technologies? Since I was the one who raised it, maybe it's only fair for me to, to take the first stab at that. Um, but one of the th things that struck me in thinking about how my own field and other humanities fields have changed is recognizing that um, the sort of pace of research and presentation of research, which is fundamental to how we all conceive our careers and, and certainly to how we present, um, present work to students, um, is shifting so rapidly that I think a lot of what we talk about as a crisis in humanities is partly just a crisis in humanities publishing as well as in, um, in other academic <laughs> venues. And so it, it looks worse than it is because there's such a clear sense of um, vulnerability on the part of university presses. But one of the things, when I spoke earlier about a sense of the humanities feeling a little bit more timeless and hence out of time or out of pace with contemporary culture, I think is, is seen most dramatically in the pace of, say, book production, which now, which has always been slow, but now feels very slow when you compare the pace at which, say, scientific research appears in various websites and then think about getting a, a book, a literary monograph accepted, which might take about two years from the time that you first start sending out letters that will sit on somebody's desk for a month or two and then they'll get back to you and by, by the time each reader's report has taken half a year and you've done some revisions and then it takes another six months for it to go before a board, it feels very slow and it feels very old. That's not necessarily problematic, but what it does do is create a sense that other fields are moving faster and that, um, that part of the sense of, I think, vulnerability on the part of humanities colleagues comes in part from a sense that we're still in the old publishing world and everybody else is moving into the new publishing world. So that colleagues in economics are publishing a lot of their work online. Um, colleagues in the sciences are doing most of their work online. We seem to be the only people left who are still doing books. And I love books, and, and everybody that I know would, would still um, enjoy publishing a book in addition to perhaps doing other forms of presentation. But the fact that that is the kind of canonical standard way in which we present work means that we're starting to move into a different kind of universe in terms of our scholarly field from the one that other people are occupying. And I think many of us who do spend a fair amount of time reading other work on the web recognize that we're sort of living in two cultures and there's the slow-moving book culture and then there's the rest of the world that's moving a lot faster. So trying to bring those things into alignment in the way that some presses, I think, are trying to do by expanding their, their digital publications seems to me absolutely critical to helping to bring the humanities along at the same pace that other fields are, are moving. There's, I mean, when you talk about the book, there are actually two different things that one could be referring to. One is something monograph length or longer as opposed to a short article, and the other is printed on, on uh, uh, dead trees. And um, so a book itself now, obviously it's never going to uh, have the quick turnaround a paper does just because of sheer length. But in terms of publication lag, there's no reason anymore that it has to be as uh, slow as it used to be in the, when everything was done just purely on paper. I mean, when I, now when I do research, I'll have um, the, the physical book, which, I, uh, which has a lot of advantages. Paper's a very good medium for a lot of things. Um, but then I'll also have often either the um, iBook version open uh, or I'll go to the page on Amazon or Google Books so that when I want to do one thing that paper is terrible at, namely searching for text strings, uh, I can just, even though I'm looking at the book, I'll then go to the screen, type in the text screen, find the page, go back to the book. And this speeds things up a lot because I've never actually timed it. But in doing research, relying on a thick book, you often spend a lot of time leafing, looking for some phrase that you read that you forgot to write down. It is uh, completely anachronistic that, uh, that we have to do that. 
uh, a lot, and a lot of the the uh, physical constraints on a book really do start to feel frustrating. Like, um, you know, basically a footnote is a um, is a kind of a primitive uh, uh, hyperlink uh, when when you think about it, and a uh, an index is a primitive search engine. Um, there's no we could love books as much as we always have, but not necessarily confine ourselves to some of these limitations, which are are really just Historic, uh, historical uh, artifacts. Another thing that drives me crazy is uh, discursive endnotes, where often the book publisher doesn't even think to do things like put the page range at the top uh, or to uh, let you know what chapter you're looking for the, the notes for. And a lot of time is spent in many books just trying to go back and forth between the footnotes and the text. Uh, there's just no reason that that should happen. Uh, and you don't have to be a Philistine to com- to complain about it because it says nothing about the scholarly depth or even the sheer bulk of the material. In fact, on the contrary, it makes longer uh, texts uh, that much more usable and, and uh, appealing. One, one way in which I think the argument becomes not so much about the substance but about the way in which um, the books are put together, I think, is in recognizing that even the example that I gave of how long it takes to produce a book mostly isn't about the printing. It's about the kind of traditional review process and how long it takes. And one of the things that struck me in, in you know, the, the most recent experience that I had of, of sending a book out and, and waiting for readers' reports was that it now begins to seem odd that it takes so long and that only two people are reading your book manuscript. That is, when you compare that to what happens when you put something on the web and lots of people start commenting on it right away, that's become a a common enough way of getting critical feedback that I started feeling very jealous of friends who were posting things online and getting lots of good feedback because I was only hearing from two people and it took them months and months. They were wonderful, thoughtful reports. And I'm not even saying that it's necessarily a better thing to have lots of quick comments rather than long, thoughtful comments, but it is different. And my experience, even of reading those reports, has changed over the last few years because I've become more accustomed to a kind of scholarly interaction that's closer to real time. It began to seem very strange that it was taking that long and that I was relying on the judgment of two people to comment on a particular aspect of a work rather than lots of people. And so things like the recent Shakespeare Quarterly experiment with um, crowdsourcing um, their peer review process, where instead of sending it out, they just posted it and said, tell us what you think. Um, It got a lot of attention. And it's interesting idea. I'm not sure it substitutes for identifying people with particular expertise and targeting them, but it's become common enough that my own way of thinking about my writing is starting to change because it's beginning to seem very strange to only care what two people think instead of wondering what do a lot of other people think. No, I think that's, a, that's a, uh, uh, an acute comment that even that it, I'm in a field that's not exactly uh, the hardest of sciences, uh, cognitive psychology, uh, but not quite in the humanities either, but there the rate-limiting step is absolutely the review process. And it's been estimated that in experimental psychology, there's a six-year lag from having an idea to seeing it in print. Uh, And a lot of that lag is the cycle of it sitting in reviewers' inboxes. They take their time to write the review. Usually it's with demands for uh, revise and resubmit. Then there's another review process. Uh, That goes on for many cycles. Actually, getting it into print is one of the speediest parts, but the process, our process of peer review does deserve a, a second look. It's not clear. And, and I think all of us know, you know published in peer-reviewed journals, there's a lot of 
chance as to who those two people are who get sent your paper. And if they like you, it'll get accepted. And if they hate you, it won't get accepted. And if one likes you and one hates you, then there'll be endless cycles of revising, resubmitting. You hope that the, the editor will, you know. So it's, it's not an optimal way, necessarily, of filtering for quality. Now, I don't know if the alternative of, which is more and more feasible, publish everything, let readers you know, rank, link, comment, things rise to the top of the page to the extent that people uh, like it. People, anyone can post their own review. They find a flaw. There it is. At the end of your paper, you could reply to it or not. And uh, with unlimited publication space, unlike the, the wood pulp journals, uh, there's no reason that uh, everything can't be published, and the stuff that's really uh, crummy will just sink to the bottom as no one comments on it or links to it. I don't know if I'm ready to go that far. But on the other hand, we are living with the historical legacy of limited publication space, and, a, and, a, and the, the practice of peer review probably was um, solidified when academia was far smaller than it is now. It's not clear if you were going to devise the process from scratch and your desideratum was encourage and disseminate the highest quality scholarship that the current process of sending it out to two people is necessarily the best and the... That was put very gently. I'd like to urge the audience to get your questions ready. This is my last question, and after this, we will turn to the audience. Uh, implicit in what both of you have just been saying... Um, uh, is a much is is the is the vast issue of the way in which we're clearly in a moment in which the inheritance of print culture is migrating into digital format, and obviously that's going to take a tremendously long time to be completed. But it's already a, uh, it's already well underway. Uh, it's obvious to me, at least, that that this migra- that that humanists ought to have a great deal to say about the way this migration is occurring. <laughs> And I'm wondering if they actually do. And I think this is, this is really a, a major question. Uh, even in the case of Google Books, of course, we know that there's a quite rich uh, controversy uh, uh, over, the, over the particular strategies that are being used by Google for this process and how much control or, or, or lack of control Google will be exercising over the, over the materials. And that's just one sort of uh, small example uh, so, so my, my, uh, my, my broad question is, uh, in this uh, sort of ongoing process, which presumably is going to take a, generations, um, do you think that, uh, as I do, that, that uh, humanists have a particularly important role to play? And if they do, how would they begin to do it? How would they begin to influence the technologists to let them say, listen, you know, when you do footnotes, better to make it a floating hypertext than to put it at the back. <laughs> right, that sort of thing. Do you want to start with that one or shall I? Well, I, th- I think your, the tone of your question suggests that you feel that perhaps humanists have abrogated their responsibility in some way, abdicated their responsibility and not, not stepping forward more decisively. And I think it's because um, things have changed so quickly and individual tastes are so different that I don't think there is a, a real policy on the part of any professional organization that I can think of um, towards some of those questions um, and controversies that you're mentioning. And I think individuals themselves have quite mixed feelings about them. You know, I know I, I, I do as I a researcher. I wasn't actually indicting the humanists so much mm-hmm. as the, the the mm-hmm. folks who are making encyclopedias yes. 
Many years ago, in the very early dawn of the uh, digital age, I was asked to review a uh, 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 what was an, uh, a proto version, a, a beta version of what became Encarta. They were very excited about the fact that they could uh, include voice as well as text. And so their plan was, okay, we're going to do poetry and we're going we're to have Robert Frost poem and we'll have Frost reading the poem. And it was a wonderful idea. But they found, because there was limited bandwidth in those days, they found that they didn't really have enough space to do the whole thing. So this was their decision. This is what I have in mind. Their decision was, give only half the poem. Because we can, we, we can hear voice and poem together that way, even though it was only a 15-line poem. So that seems a sort of bad decision that a, that a, that a, that a humanist might have been able to That's correct. That's right. That's right. And I, and I think, though I was sort of joking about the sense in which humanists haven't stepped up to the plate, I think, there, I think it, it's the case that it's very difficult for individual scholars to feel that they can speak with authority about whether it is a good thing or a not good thing to have certain... Um, perspectives taken on how the, for example, digitization of books by Google will proceed, because how you feel about it depends, among other things, on whether you yourself already have access to a good research library, um, in which case, why would you particularly favor this project versus someone who doesn't, who might see that it really opens up their research horizons in an exciting way. I think people have very different views on it, depending on whether they see their own research agenda um, being expanded or not particularly affected. I think, though, that the, the question that Steve raised about where the kind of filtering takes place in the publication process Process. Is it before something is published or is it afterwards um, is part of the issue because if there is no sort of filtration process in determining what does get digitized, what does get presented, what is accessible, I think there is some sense that um, it's difficult to know what the overall impact on particular fields will be. Would, for example, there be an enormous boom in studying a particular author simply because their books got digitized first and is that the way in which you would want to decide who was the major novelist of the 1920s because this particular collection came forward? As soon as I say that, I say, I find myself thinking, it's wonderful the stuff that's now accessible that you can find on the web. It's unbelievable the way in which research has changed um, by virtue of the things that are now there. And often the kind of odd, idiosyncratic, arbitrary things that just happen to be there are the fortuitous choices that, you, um, that lead you in an interesting direction. So I'm not sure it's a bad thing, but it is certainly an uncontrolled thing. And so in some ways what would make sense would be to have some of the major professional organizations or some groups of scholars be invited to weigh in on some of the decisions that I think are being made about how some of these things will proceed. Instead, what you have are individual libraries, individual presses, and for-profit companies you know, doing their best to do what makes sense from their perspective. That's not the same as deciding we're going to have a national digital archive, here's how we're going to set it up. It's lots of individual and in some cases commercially driven decisions that might go in the right direction and might end up being something that we wish had evolved differently. Let me mention a, a, um, another uh, point that hasn't come up in our discussion yet but that I think is relevant to this. I mean, in, in, I, I'm assuming that the experience of the, the three of us or anyone in our, our uh, uh, age demographic that very often we learn about digital innovations from people who are younger than us, uh, that it's a, a, I can think of a lot of cases where it would be a graduate student who says, oh, have you, um, did you know that you could keep f files on your computer as a PDF? I mean, this was you know, 10, 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, that didn't occur to me to have my reprint collection actually on my computer. Uh, and uh, and uh, there, I'm sure there are many other examples. I don't know if there have been studies of the, um, the demographic profile in the humanities, but anecdotally, it feels to me kind of old. I mean, in the in the uh, professoriate, anyway, that the consequence of the 
expansion of the university's massive granting of tenure in the 70s means that there's an aging professoriate. A lot of uh, people, if they survive at all, hanging on by their fingernails as uh, migratory uh, lecturers, can't can break into the majors, uh, not because of talent, but just because our generation hasn't died yet. Um, is there going to be, I think, a, a limitation? Is there going to be a limitation on the innovation in the humanities just from the fact that it's not getting this bulge of younger people who tend to be the early adopters and, and early innovators, for that matter? I think there are a lot of questions that, that uh, say, Allison raised on how could you have, say, visualization techniques in different fields, history, music, political science, languages, that... Uh, Say even spread of languages over history, could you actually see it you know, oozing across a map you know, in 3D or in something that I can't think of because I've already passed my critical period for acquiring new technologies, but that some 20-year-old, some it would be the most obvious thing to him or her, uh, but if that 20-year-old is going to go into... Um, uh, well, go into, I don't want to say engineering in this, in this university, but go into law, for example, <laughs> something horrible like that, instead of into uh, English literature or philosophy, are we missing out on that source of innovation by our skewed demographics? Now is the time for the audience. Uh, may I ask you, if you'll notice, there are microphones on e in both aisles. It would be helpful if you would speak into the microphone because our sessions are recorded, as you know, and it would also be helpful if you would identify yourself when you come to the microphone. So we're open for questions now. Um, but while we're waiting for you to get up your courage to come up with questions, uh, uh, here we are. Okay. Um, I'm Leslie Rule. I'm at the Graduate School of Ed at, at Harvard. Um, so my question is, you have spoken a lot about using uh, digital technologies as tools for productivity or as an extension of things that are already done. What about digital technologies for creation? So when you look at the iPad and you look at the types of books that are being created, and we sp you spoke a little bit about that, but the, the Encarta example is one, but um, the ability to you know, all of the, basically all of the literacies that you want to put in, you can. And I think that um, Unless the humanities, you know, heads in that direction, it, it, it really does feel sort of old. And, um, you know, it won't get integrated into teaching and learning at least at a, you know, at an at a elementary and or, you know, high school level. So if you would speak a little bit about that, I think that would be interesting. Thank you. Well, I'm, uh, I think there is a, a lot of... Uh, promise in that, just as in, uh, as Allison mentioned, in lecturing, the uh, ability of PowerPoint to allow you to show images, animation, uh, video is a, a very powerful teaching tool. I mean, it can be uh, used in gimmicky, distracting ways, but uh, for at least for what I do, teaching uh, psychology, the opportunities that it's opened uh, have been uh, amazing. Uh, and I can imagine, likewise with uh, books. I, mean, I don't know if you've heard the expression of a, a, a book. This is a book with you know video links and so on. That could be a nightmare if it was uh, like what you often have on news websites, where you click a story and instead of reading it, you've got some guy yammering to you, which I find incredibly annoying because I'd rather just read it. On the other hand, there are some things where the medium actually uh, can be put to good use. 
we already are used to that with, with illustrations. Many books have uh, illustrations and plates, and often it's important to have color, uh, as in art history. In some cases, it might be important to have video or motion or sound or graphics. So for just an example, the book that I'm working on now on violence, there's a discussion in which uh, I'm referring to parts of the brain that are involved in self-control and violence, and I have the standard picture uh, of a brain. But when I try to understand the brain myself, when I teach about it, I have a graphics program where you can actually rotate it and look at it from different angles, which is far more intuitive than seeing a static picture, just because the brain is such a wiggly, complicated, three-dimensional object that unless you can kind of pull it apart and look inside, you really don't know what you're looking at. If there was a book that, when you talk about the brain, had not just a picture of the brain, but something where you could take your finger and rotate the brain or dissect it to see what's behind this lobe when the text refers to it, uh, that could be a huge asset in communication. And I think that's where the, the sort of book debate will end when it becomes easier to do that sort of thing because already people, for example, working in fields like musicology are noticing pretty dramatic differences between what it means to write an article in which if you're talking about a particular Brahms symphony, somebody has to go find a recording of it and in some other space listen to it and then come back to your argument and see what they think versus being able to click onto it and have the precise illustration that you'd like um, played immediately. But the, the question also raises, uh, points out the fact that we're talking from a scholarly rather than a creative perspective Perspective, that there's a whole lot more that one could say that's very interesting about the forms of art that are now possible using technology. And we've really been focusing primarily on, a, on the scholarly dimension. And so when I'm talking about a book, I'm talking about something like a scholarly monograph <clears throat> within my own field. If you think about how novels may change when people start incorporating video and, and illustrations into them, because you can, I think eventually it won't be long before you'll have novels or something that we might or might not call novels that will be a combination of text and image and perhaps moving image that will be in aesthetic experience that's not at all like anything we have now. All right, I'm Flourish Clink, and I am a lecturer in comparative media studies, and I just graduated from MIT in the comparative media studies department. And hearing this, <laughs> I have to say, you guys, I'm supposed to be writing a summary of this right now, and I had to jump up and, <laughs> and uh, give you this question, because this is an, a perfect example of how people aren't getting it. Okay. I just tried to write my master's thesis on a topic which in many ways was very traditional but was about you know uh, some of these texts which actually do have video and, and animation and so on and I was incredibly frustrated because the MIT library wouldn't take the information that is ephemeral, this is stuff that's all posted online and I can't guarantee it's going to exist forever so when you can't find it anymore my work is total trash, it's gone and the MIT library wouldn't, wouldn't accept like, you know, all of that information that I had carefully collated. You know, I couldn't put it in HTML form and give it to them. Um, and I've had, there have been other students who have had this case too, and this is a problem for academic publishing because I'm looking into the future and thinking, how is my work ever going to actually get published, you know, in a way that anybody can understand it um, when, you know, as you were saying, paper journals are not going to be able to show the animated GIF that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to bring that to you and, and, I know there wasn't so, really Flourish, are you saying there. are you saying it was a technical problem that the library didn't have wouldn't didn't have the facilities for storing your information, or um, your information was in a category they didn't care about? Well, I, I wouldn't be able to say on that because by the time that I got to that point, when they said no, I was just like, "Screw you all! I've worked on this for so long." <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. But um, 
more or less as I understand it, the issue was that they require you to put in a uh, sort of a text, um, you know, a text version of this format in their way. And if it is code, if it's HTML code, um, then the best that you can do is submit like your entirely marked up document and have it printed and bound into their little book with all the markup in it, which I've known several people to have done. Um, and you can put a CD in the back, but um, CDs, you know, degrade over time. So there's not really a good solution there. Um, and also then, you know, you're responsible for going through a lot of bureaucratic mess to even get that CD in there, which by the time the next person goes to it will be degraded. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a policy issue, I think. But it's not just MIT's fault. You know, I'm not trying to pick on MIT. This is, I think, coming up in several places. So. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a media issue and a storage issue, but it also, it, it seems to me there's sort of two places where that's a problem, in the creation of a work that relies on um, links that may disappear and materials that may be ephemeral, and then in what, what level of commitment of resources does the institution have to maintaining a variety of formats in order to keep those things alive, and that's, in fact, was, was a topic at the, at the uh, Media and Transition Conference that, um, that David referred to earlier, a recognition that because there is no organized system at work here, you just have lots of people doing lots of different things, there has really nobody has come up with the sort of gold standard of here is what we're going to do to ensure that the same format that you're using somebody else is using and the library will be committed to maintaining they're waiting for all of that um, you know they're waiting to decide you know which which um, which format and which system of any particular medium is going to survive and that's something that just kind of happens in an evolutionary way so I can certainly see why that's frustrating well, I, one one thing it seems to me I mean, th uh, this obviously is a question that goes far beyond the humanities it applies to all fields but it may have particular urgency in the humanities. It's the problem of what I call the instability of platforms. I mean, if you, the fact is, the book is an incredibly durable technology. And if you think about the delivery systems, platforms for communication that have risen and disappeared just in the last 15 or 20 years, you'll understand more clearly why this problem of instability is such a deep one. You can certainly understand why archivists and libraries would be reluctant to commit themselves to formats that are going to go out of date. On the other hand, we don't have any permanent formats. And, and uh, This seems to me, in a broad sense, one of the really fundamental problems that the ongoing digital transition we're in, uh, uh, we may be in a lifetime of transition. We may live and die in a ceaseless spectacle of transition. As, uh, 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 but but th that wonderful phrase is Thomas Pynchon's. Uh, um, but if that's true, it raises this issue in a particularly acute way. Yeah, I mean, I'll give a, a, an example that probably a number of us are familiar with. When, uh, you know, when, when I had to turn in my thesis, and there was this, this transition period where the librarians were still insisting that theses be submitted on Crane's thesis paper uh, typed with a cloth ribbon. Uh, xerography wasn't permanent enough because the little bits of you know, plastic could flake off. Inkjet printers were still kind of new on the block. Now, you can see the concern of the libraries. Uh, on the other hand, it would be preposterous to insist that all theses be submitted with a, you know, an ink ribbon the way they used to. In answer to your question, what do uh, humanists have to contribute to evolution of um, digital technology? This strikes me as a, as a huge one, namely who is asking the question, gee, what are people 100 years from now going to have as our cultural legacy if, thing, if you know, the 8-inch floppy gives way to the 5-inch floppy, gives way to the, uh, you know, the thumb drive and so on? That's the question that the humanist can and should ask, forcing everyone else to think about something that they may not have thought about.
I myself think that one implication of this is that you have to be ready to commit to interim choices, but but that you should try to make the interim choice as wide as as widely shared as possible. If it's only the Harvard Library that's made the commitment, it's much less helpful than if all universities library university libraries say, okay, uh, we found a semi-stable tech, a platform. We're going to stick with that and see what happens for the next 15 years. And even if new new even if nuances appear later, we're going to stick with this until we see that a better alternative is available. Uh, that's one partial strategy for this. But I think, in fact, it's one of the critical ongoing problems that face all forms of learning and education in the digital age. A question here. Oh. Yeah, Teresa. Sorry, sorry, Teresa. Yeah, I, I wanted to defend the honor of the libraries. Um, actually, the libraries are just enforcing the rules of the provost, as you know. So... Uh, <laughs> It really goes further than the libraries, but oh, I'm 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 sure they were. I'm sure they were. But thank you for defending libraries and to the absolute problem that that we have in being able to bring the archive forward to 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 maintain for a hundred years, for two hundred years. You want your thesis read fifty years from now, and it won't be. It won't be if it is not in some stable format. So the libraries are working on it. We really are, and we've been working for eight years with the provost to come up with standards. We're getting closer, but we're not there. But Teresa, are you working on standards that are just for MIT? Does this mean that there are 15 or 20 or 30 different well, enterprises I, of this sort going on and each are, will come up to a different answer? Yeah, we are, we are sharing our, our take on it with other university libraries, with ARL libraries, Association of Research Libraries. So I think when a standard comes, it will all be doing it fairly quickly on top of each other. But um, it's not here now. Thanks. Michael, I'm an archivist. At a little w closer to the mic. Oh, can you hear me? Courtney Michael, I'm an archivist at WGBH, and also I have a history background. So I have a two-part question. But first, I also wanted to um, say that some of those those issues are also being solved by scientists um, and by publishers. Um, I think we don't have to be too scared about it. Digital object identifiers, permanent URLs, even the semantic web will help us with the permanence of these digital digital information. But my question, um, the first was just a comment on, on, I think, your question about um, humanist, humanity scholars as creators of digital humanities as opposed to users. And I was wondering if you could comment on um, publication and sort of the, um, the way that we weight different types of publication and the creation of digital resources for others. Also, um, um, Professor Byerly had talked about um, the length of the publication process, and I wondered if you could talk about uh, humanities scholars sharing their process more. I feel like scientists are a lot better at just sort of getting something done, putting it on the web, getting some reaction, and, and changing their process. And we sort of, as, as humanities scholars, hoard everything until it's closer to finished. Mm -hmm. um, and then one, one more comment, um, just sort of on the culture of humanities scholarship. Um, you had talked about how humanities feels more past, and I'm wondering if the digital makes it more present. For example, as a historian, am I now able to look more closely at, um, at census data, or not census data, but speeches and television images from the 1990s, whereas 
historians usually look, they, they won't touch anything within 50 years of their present day. So does it bring us closer to journalism? Does it bring us closer to other fields in terms of the, the timeline? And um, again, with the, with the, the idea of um, waiting till something is published to put it out there, the idea of, you had mentioned, keeping one object sacred. I feel like historians, because I come from a history, history background, really sort of hoard their sources and they don't want to share. Um, is there a way that younger scholars will be thinking about putting their sources out there on the web, putting their comments out there on the web, getting people's feedback as part of their process of creating new history works, as opposed to just sort of waiting till they get a contract? So those are my questions. Uh, your questions, I think, um, come together into a kind of general question about how interactive, um, you know, can we be as scholars, um, and how do we go about um, entering the scholarly community both through publication and um, through the kinds of resources that we share. And you're right that the humanities is not typically a very collaborative field, and it's not because humanists don't like each other and are not as friendly as scientists. It's because the nature of the research doesn't lend itself um, as well to the kind of collaboration um, that you see in other fields. You know, fields in which a lot of the knowledge that is um, created comes through aggregating a lot of information that different people develop is quite different from um, humanities fields in which you typically have large ideas coming from small objects. You know, you don't have a lot of data coming together into a specific hypothesis. You have large philosophical ideas coming out of one poem or one piece of artwork or, you know, one philosopher's ideas. It's a very solitary process. I think some of that is changing, and I think that is one of the things that could be most interesting in the way in which humanities scholarship changes over time. So I think that, that the kind of your, your sense that there just isn't a lot of um, collaboration and a lot of interaction um, in, the, in the sort of works in progress stage is one of the things that I see changing in particular, um, to speak to Stephen's point, among younger scholars, that younger colleagues um, coming up through the ranks and, and, say, the youngest faculty that we hire at Middlebury do much more in the way of reading groups where they sit and critique each other's drafts, much more of the posting things on a wiki so that other people can comment on them than people in my generation do. So I think that's a, a very positive change. You asked earlier how are certain kinds of digital publications valued, and as someone who, in my role as provost, spends a lot of time on things like tenure and promotion reviews, it's something I think about all the time, and something that I talk with the faculty who are on the committee that is involved in that process with um, every year. I, you know, try and present um, information about changes that I've seen in fields, and, you know, when the MLA came out with a statement a year or so ago about digital publication, I gave that to our tenure and promotion committee and said, here's an example of a kind of professional standard of what constitutes meaningful publication in, um, in, that, in that kind of area. And I certainly see the envelope being pushed again by the younger scholars coming up, um, many of whom now have a blend of traditional and digital publications that makes it easy to see the quality of the digital work because it's paralleled by traditional publication. That balance is going to shift, and what will happen is 10 years from now, somebody will come up for tenure who doesn't have a thing in print. And the first time that happens, it'll be important that faculty colleagues who are involved in that process of evaluation are prepared for that. And so I think it's the responsibility of senior scholars in every field to make sure they know enough about the caliber of review that goes on in a lot of online journals and the new venues that are coming forward that they're in a good position to meaningfully comment on that work when it appears and not make assumptions about um, the work that might or might not have gone into judging um, something that appears in those forms. And so that kind of transition, I think, is important in the academy and probably will um, have a kind of generational dimension to it. I'm Alvin Kybell. And I'm booming, am I? Uh, it's, the last remarks were very interesting, and I actually have some questions about it, but I, I stood up here to raise a different point. Uh, the uh, talk so far has 
tended to in the direction of the aggregation of information, storage and retrieval and worry about platforms and all of this gives the digital age a big leg up. It, naturally, it looks like something uh, that counts simply as progress and unproblematic progress. And of course, that's an old idea. The, uh, someone would write the history of it. Maybe it has been written. The invention of the printed book allowed standard editions, which allowed indexing the contents, which was a big boost to the storage and retrieval of information. The invention in the 19th century of filing cabinets enabled huge... <laughs> huge bureaucracies to function and a a completely changed civil service. But I I don't hear any lengthy discussion about the fact, in fact the contrary, it's sort of taken for granted. I don't hear any lengthy discussion about the fact that when you store things that are the primary objects of study, you're changing the nature of the medium. Uh, Wolfland, when he first set up the projection of slides to teach art, never thought he was teaching the artwork. He was teaching the iconography. Now, if, if you look at um, a book like André Malibro's Museum Without Walls, which celebrates the fact that the book has changed, the, the color print has changed access to works of art, what he reproduces have a, has a different size and, and uh, demands different modes of attention from the people who look at this, these works, especially when they're juxtaposed with other works which don't really have much to do with them. Uh, but the worst, I'm sticking with the visual arts because, uh, Ms. Barley, you were sort of celebrating the idea that everything now can be put in storage and, retrie- in, and retrieved in digital form. When you look at pictures that have been retrieved on a a TV, on a computer screen, you are looking at uh, light coming through the image. It's entirely different from looking at light that's reflected from the image, and the works take on a depth and a brilliance that they never had before and that weren't intended. And I think something of the same happens when you digitalize books. I wonder if anybody is addressing this problem. Uh, if it is a problem, and how the panel thinks one should go about it. I guess I I would start by saying I consider any of those problems in relation to the alternative. That is, I think none of us would say that looking at either a slide or a digitized image of a painting is the same as seeing the painting. You know, I teach in Middlebury, Vermont, which is not very close to the Louvre. It's not even very close to the Metropolitan Museum. Um, most of our students, when studying art, are looking at things that either are slides or in books. And, you know, fortunate students who are well-funded um, through one of the grants that we occasionally can give might go and look at some of the works that they're studying while they're abroad. Um, but by and large, the study of art is a kind of distanced um, operation for our art history department. They're already working in a medium that is not the original work of art. And so I think it's very important to make sure that students recognize that. And talking about precisely the kinds of things that you raise, I think, is something I've certainly heard our faculty discuss. There was a big discussion of moving from slides to digitization. Um, in our own uh, department, the very last colleague who was willing to show his things digitized rather than slides did so this year. Up until last year, he was still showing slides because he said the color is better than the digitized version, exactly as you said. But he recognizes that the trade-off in having access to so many more images 
images so much more conveniently when put in the context of you know the other trade-offs to him seemed worth it. So I think that you know for myself I would say that um, the, re- the the experience of reading a book is different on screen. When I I recently had some students reading. Um, uh, Dickens's Bleak House in, in monthly numbers um, through um, a website at Stanford that presents the monthly numbers with illustrations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's not at all the same as reading the tattered paper copy that you would have been reading in the Victorian period, and it's also not like reading a Penguin edition of the novel. We, we talked about how those experiences were different, um, and I think it's important to recognize that they are, but I'm not sure I would agree that that's something to feel threatened by. I think it's always the case that media will change and that um, making sure we understand what is inherent in the work and what is is a function of the, the way in which it's presented, I guess, is what I would hope to convey to students. I don't know what you would add. No, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. I'm Shigeru Miyagawa. I'm a linguist, and uh, I also work on uh, new media projects in humanities, particularly in history. And it's in the lateral that uh, I have a sort of an observation and a question uh, about something that's been mentioned uh, in many different forms. So. Uh, you talked about two kinds of benefits for humanists uh, in using technology. One is the, the uh, arts, uh, art historian uh, example, Allison, that you mentioned, which is an enabling uh, kind of a benefit. Uh, it enables you to do something better, something that you have always done. Uh, the other kind of benefit uh, is the kind that Steve mentioned and also uh, Pete Donaldson's project and, and also the project that I do with John Dower, Visualizing cultures in which uh, using technology, digital technology, so sort of forces you to ask questions that you didn't, you didn't ask before. And it's the latter that I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in pursuing. Uh, and I, in particular, with, with my project, Visualizing Cultures, we look at images and what images can tell us about history. Uh, so historians uh, traditionally look at written text, uh, and particularly by author- uh, written by authoritarian figures in the society. And, and you create history out of that. And what uh, John Dower, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, and I, have been doing is looking at images, historically important images, looking at images as text, uh, and analyzing that as a way to tell history. Uh, and, and, and I think the work is very important. Uh, but you know, in the, uh, in the academy, uh, you talked about tenure. You talked about uh, uh, referee journals. There's a huge, huge wall to climb. Uh, with, uh, Steve, you mentioned the age gap. Um, you know, I don't know that I would encourage a junior faculty to do this uh, in history, because it's, it's a huge gamble. You can fail a career or, or a journal article uh, by choosing, you know, making the wrong decision. Uh, and, but this, in turn, uh, keeps us from asking the interesting questions that are now uh, possible to ask. Uh, and so we're struggling with this. And uh, if you know of any previous experiences of fields that have somehow overcome this, what I consider to be a very, very um, big challenge for the humanists. Uh, and we're imposing it on ourselves because of this tenure system, because of the referee journal uh, system that we have. In thinking about fields that have overcome those challenges, I was reminded as you're speaking of what happened in English departments when people started treating films as texts. 
You know, before there were film programs or media programs, all film was taught in English departments because people who were interested in narrative were the first people to think of teaching film um, as an academic subject. And you know, some of us can almost dimly recall when that seemed strange. You know, when it was a kind of sideline for some English professors to be doing. First, you'd start with you know films of Shakespeare, and then pretty soon you were just doing um, Hitchcock because you liked Hitchcock. And um, pretty soon, you know, you were starting a film program. And that was a way in which the study of narrative moved out of a particular format, novels, and and other forms of literature into another area that allowed people who were already studying text to say, well, it's a visual text, but it's like a text. And then they had to develop a whole area of expertise um, that's quite different from perhaps literary expertise. But I, I would hope something similar could happen in the field of history, for example, if the study of images no longer becomes the province of art historians look at art, looking at art, but becomes the province of historians reading images with that same level of sophistication. I would hope that could be seen as compelling. I, I guess what I would say about the kinds of processes that we're talking about is that the whole field has to collaborate in creating a system in which those things are understood. Candidates coming up for review have to make sure that they do lay the groundwork among their own colleagues for communicating what they do, which is what I always tell colleagues who do really cutting-edge work. Make sure you tell everyone what you're publishing, why that's an important journal, who are the other people who have published in it. Um, if you're doing something online, make sure that you give people lots of information about who else is involved in this project so they can see what establishes the credibility. And I think that it just as fields we have a responsibility to try and figure out how we can create a culture of understanding of what the new works are so that people coming up aren't disadvantaged by having colleagues of the generation Steve was referring to that is ours um, say, this doesn't look like real history to me. It's about pictures. Um, hopefully, you would be a colleague who would not assess a, a junior colleague in that way and, and you know, could be part of an effort to make sure that that new trend is recognized in the field. I think it is worth uh, doing a <coughs> comparative study of academic disciplines to see uh, which ones have experimented with other models and, and how well they've fared. And in the, uh, a couple of decades ago, the discipline of computer science, which was relatively new, had different models of publication and promotion. I mean, even before the web, there was just publishing in technical reports as opposed to peer-reviewed journals, and it just was known in, com in computer science. Uh, you didn't publish, people didn't publish everything in peer-reviewed journals. It was just too slow and laborious, and, but technical reports circulated and required a reputation, and, and I think deans and provosts had to get used to mm -hmm. considering candidates who didn't have a long list of peer-reviewed journals, and it seems to have worked out okay in computer science. So another example is the uh, electronic journal, which was... Um, uh, partly done in uh, cahoots with librarians who were sick of paying uh, these uh, outrageous sums for paper journals. And uh, Michael Jordan, when he was here at MIT, helped take a, a journal and just transplant it online and um, say, uh, to hell with you, Elsevier or Sprague, <laughs> Springer or whatever it was. And uh, that was a model that started there that w was then emulated in biology and other fields. So we Michael should Jordan. The, not the uh, not the Chicago Bulls. Uh, I thought it was uh, an important correction. Card. No, My, Michael Jordan, the uh, the statistician, computational neuroscientist, psychologist. I just talk into the microphone because the audience can't hear you and our. So I, I just wanted to say that one of the, um, to uh, the to your comment about uh, different disciplines that archaeology, because they have been dealing with artifacts, have moved a little bit further along. Um, and they're not, you know, whether or not they're, you, you know, humanists or social scientists, I don't know, but they have actually moved more towards, um, you know, a, a blended sort of uh, 
um, publication model, I guess. I feel compelled to say, and now for something completely different. <laughs> so my name is Philippe. I'm a visiting student here in uh, biological engineering. I, I want your opinion on something. I've been recently hearing the claim that, um, and to bring it back to the problem of uh, lack of investment or difficulty in getting financing for the departments of humanities, uh, recently hearing the claim that um, this is far from naive political process. It's part of uh, turning educated population into problem solvers, you know, specialized problem solvers rather than, so scientists and engineers rather than, uh, say, problem framers. Presumably, people in the humanities. So, you know, as professionals in the humanities, I'd like your opinion on this. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm the moderator, so I'll start. I'm, I, I'm reluctant. I'm reluctant to take on the responsibility of, uh, for, for humanists of being the only ones to frame crucial questions. Uh, it, it, mean, it seems to me, you know, one, one, one can expect. Uh, uh, that same level of cognitive skill in scientists and social scientists. But I think that there is a truth in what you're saying. I think that, that, that it has traditionally fallen to the humanities to frame questions of the sort that you're alluding to. And insofar as the humanities are more reluctant, if Allison is right, to or, or, or structurally... Uh, 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 structurally organized such that it is more difficult for them... Uh, and a slower for them to adjust to the to, to digital things. I think that you're, you're pointing to something quite significant, and I and I do think, of course, that uh, if we went into if, if if we if in the United States we actually moved to a situation in which uh, the humanities were. Uh, uh, an immensely marginal activity that only a very small number of students uh, engaged in, I think the consequences for the larger culture of the university and the larger culture of the society would be very uh, dire. The issue, the problem is, I mean, I, it's easy to sing these crisis songs, but I, it's hard for me to see that such, such a dramatic uh, uh, and negative outcome. I think we're likely to muddle along weeping about crisis and being partly in crisis, but partly solving our problems in the way history in general muddles along. <laughs> Steve, you, I'm sure Steve could be more eloquent on no, this question. Uh, I, mean, I think it is. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with um, humanities scholars making the case to the general public of what the uh, historic impact has been of people who who could have, could be seen as uh, interpretive scholars who, in their time, may not have uh, uh, been seen to be as historically important as they are, or issues now that can be illuminated by no one but a humanities scholar. Uh, in the current election, there are claims about the the the, the framers and the, and the founders. Uh, you see collection uh, uh, claims about the greatest generation. It would be great if more historians would immediately leap in and make sure that their number was on the you know, the Rolodex of the radio and TV uh, show producers to weigh in with that kind of knowledge on historic issues that are very much on people's minds now, that very much depend on framing problems, not just solving them. Uh, and, and I think humanists would do well to uh, make that point repeatedly. Hi, uh, my name is Ahmed. I'm a junior here in Course 9, Brain and Cognitive Sciences, um, mostly as a result of having 
read How the Mind Works when I was 11 years old. <laughs> 11 years old? <laughs> Impressive. Um, so uh, I'm a 20-year-old male, and this is a conversation <laughs> about humanities in the digital age, so I want to talk about video games. <laughs> um, I, I just want to hear your ideas about the video game becoming a, legit, a legitimate humanity. Uh, I think there are a lot of parallels between the video game and uh, the film. For example, um, I took uh, Professor Thorburn's film experience class, and we talked about um, the Fred Ott sneeze, which was just a five-second video of a man sneezing. And I think we can compare that to uh, a simple video game like Pong, which isn't really played anymore, but we talk about in a historical perspective. And then uh, coming to the modern era, uh, with video games now being advertised exactly like movie trailers, if you look at the recent advertisements for Saints Row or Grand Theft Auto 4, they look like movie trailers. So I'm just wondering uh, what you think about uh, the progression of the video game uh, as a humanity. If I could take the first step at that, I would, I would comment that you know, there's, a, there's an interesting um, conversation going on among those who study video games about whether really they're closer to narrative or closer, whether the game aspect outweighs the narrative aspect, you know, whether you see them as a story that has enough sort of coherence and drive of its own that it's comparable to a film or a novel, or is it a game that is so driven by the, the player's experience that it doesn't have that you know, sort of aesthetic status that we accord to works of art? And, and one of the things that that, I think, debate raises is the question of how interactivity gets factored into our understanding of the aesthetic, that since most artworks are, are the product of um, the individual mind and are prized as such, we're not accustomed to attributing aesthetic value to something that is sort of co-created between the creator and, and the experiencer. And so I think there's probably going to be a lot more discussion about how you play something like a video game before people feel secure enough about it as a sort of work of art um, to recognize that. That said, plenty of books being written about uh, video games now, plenty of people making them an object of, of serious study. You know, we've interviewed candidates in our own film and media culture program, even in Middlebury College in Vermont, um, you know, who work primarily on video games and do really interesting theoretical um, analyses. And so I think that it's already moved in that direction for those who are scholars in the field. I think probably the general public isn't accustomed to thinking of video games as something that is in the same league as films, but I think it probably um, is going to follow that same trajectory, I would think. It's already a bigger business than film. Yes, Yes, that's right. Yeah, we we ignore it at our peril, (laughs) given the number of dollars and number of person hours that it consumes. That's true. Well, the, the, the CMS program here, as some of you in the audience surely yes. know, is, is, one of the, is, is on the cutting edge of this. And I've learned much more from my students than I've taught them in comparative media studies about video games. It's obvious to me that they are, a new, they are an embryonic aesthetic form, that they're going to be a major aesthetic form in the future. I don't think there's any question. I think that they belong to a special class of objects that are now emerging because digital technologies open up new forms of creativity that we're just beginning to discover. And I I, I think it's inconceivable that in 50 years or in 100 years we won't have new kinds of objects of study in our curricula that come out of this revolution we're living through. Uh, Diana Henderson, and not for the first time, I'm not sure what generation I'm part of after listening to this conversation. Um, First, just an easy observation, because I was one of the reviewers for the Shakespeare Quarterly. Um, It was not just crowdsourcing, believe me. Uh, Before anything got online, it was uh, reviewed by 
traditional folks who know a lot (laughs) about Shakespeare. And then some of us were asked to be expert reviewers, and we also opened it up for crowdsourcing. So I think it's a hybrid model that we might want to think more about, which doesn't sacrifice what I haven't heard much about um, yet, uh, which is questions of judgment that have been historically very important to the work of the humanities. And I guess I wanted to bring that back in. I also wanted to bring in you know, critique as a positive. Um, and that maybe one of the reasons also we haven't just given up on the book, at least from when I talked to my colleagues, is that it's not just that we're old-fashioned, it's also the sense of one of the things we have to offer in the humanities is sustained attention mm-hmm. to a complex article argument that cannot be made a Twitter, that cannot be even made, should not be made a single article. Um, and too many books are, in fact, inflated articles. We all know that. But to, to see the medium appropriate to the disciplinary work we're trying to do. So I think I'm hearing a little too much as if it's just a matter of lagging because of that. On the other hand, I'm very much in, in the forefront of wanting to work more collaboratively. And in that regard, I also want to go back to the future uh, and remind people of performativity in that old sense. There are forms of collaborative artwork. Novelists, I know, are not first on that list, but since I do drama, um, we've been being interactive for 2,000 years. And so the idea of thinking about the true comparative media model we have here at MIT as we talk about this, I think could get us out of a couple of at least for me, dichotomies that I'm uncomfortable with. It's all generational, you know, it's just all going in one direction. I think we're replaying in a lot of ways, and Alvin was bringing this up, some familiar questions about media and transition. Um, And I hope we'll be a little more celebratory about this and put them in dialogue a bit more rather than just seeing this sequence. If I could add something about the question um, that you raised um, uh, about the sort of pace of humanities scholarship. In talking earlier, um, and, and I said a couple of things about the sort of aura of remoteness of the humanities and how it seems to be at a slower pace, I, I didn't mean even necessarily to present that as a negative, but simply as a feature of, of humanities scholarship. And in fact, I had been thinking of making precisely the same point that you made, which is that humanities scholarship involves a kind of real-time meditation on how other people's minds work. That if you think about what we do as as literary scholars or as historians or as art historians, the reason that those arguments unfold slowly is typically we are figuring out how Keats got from the beginning of the ode to the end of the ode, how Mozart got from the beginning of the symphony to the end of the symphony, and we're trying to follow a kind of mind unfolding. And so it's not coincidental that the long book is the kind of natural medium for studying um, sort of the operation of the human mind through philosophy, through religion, and through art. And so that that aspect of, of the humanities probably shouldn't change. I mean, and, and if we had more time, I would have maybe pushed back a little more on Steve's argument about the sort of aggregation of data as the, the way in which you could improve a literary argument, you know, counterpoised with, as you said to yourself, you know, the need to study certain objects very deeply and not simply count how many of them there are in, in a given time and space. I think there's room for both in literary scholarship, but I agree that it would be um, that it would be a mistake to characterize humanities scholarship as sort of slow moving simply because it's it's not of the right generation and can't catch up. It's fundamentally true true of humanities scholarship that it has a meditative quality that you wouldn't want to sacrifice. Hi, my name is Luciana, and I work with digital communication in Brazil. And as a Brazilian, I tend to see uh, the, the digital age and the web as a very vibrant and alive environment. 
So, uh, because Brazil is one of the countries that people use more social media and communication tools, and people uh, mostly use the web mostly to talk and to talk with each other. So, my question is about the creation process, as you said before, and as in the English is not my native language, I took the liberty to write it. Um, it's about the creation process as uh, in which way you think it will affect the way that we tell stories. The fact that the digital age that have enabled people to talk between each other in open forums and directly to the authors, who was a very distant figure before. And they are saying things that even can inspire these authors. It's a, a great observation, and I'm sure all of us will want to comment on that. I think your point about the way in which authors now have their own websites and invite commentary is in some ways very different, although to go back to Diana Henderson's point about how all media have, of course, um, been the same for many hundreds of years. In the Victorian period, people didn't hesitate to send Charles Dickens letters about whether they wanted Little Nell to be knocked off in the middle of the book or not. So um, you know, some, some of those things have happened just at a different pace and maybe on a different scale. But the sense of the sort of scale of dialogue among people being um, being different, I think, is something that myself I find it surprising actually that fiction hasn't changed more rapidly to reflect that. You know, it's interesting that you don't have more phone conversations represented in, in fiction, considering how much time people spend on cell phones. You don't see characters pulling out cell phones a lot in novels. You know that there's there's certain ways in which again the kind of texture and pacing of dialogue and conversation in fiction, to me at least, seems still similar to. Um, you know, the past that I grew up in rather than the one that my teenage daughter is growing up in. And I would think in 20 years there's going to be a, a different sort of mode of conversation um, for that reason. But your sense that um, so many more people are talking to each other in ways that they wouldn't have because they have those um, written conversations rather than verbal ones, I think is, I would think linguists will be spending a lot of time thinking about how speech patterns change because um, teenagers don't really talk to each other anymore. They only type. Um, that's bound to have an effect on how people communicate for, for the rest of uh, their lifetimes, and it's a little too early to tell. But I think there's going to be some very interesting work there. Over here? This, this fellow was first. You're, you're first, okay. Hi, uh, David. I studied mathematics at Berkeley many years ago. Uh, I'd like to put Google Books back on the table and wonder if you think that you know the, the ordinary layperson or Maybe the young person with humanist tendencies can use Google Books in the same way that you mentioned in the project as a way of mining data, you know, books way into the past. And then, you know, to me, it's it's just a fantastic tool that expands my ability to to search things, to find you know materials that I would not have even even in this city and with the university libraries that are close at hand. You know, I, you know. Middlebury may be a, a, an outpost, but I think now everywhere we have the ability to do this, you know, undertake the sort of project that you mentioned and, and a vast variety of other things. Comment? Yeah, no, I, uh, the fact that you have access to the, or will have to the entire corpus of, uh, of printed matter, and what, one of the terms that, that we use for this is the, uh, the human bibliome. Uh, everything that's ever been written in, in a book uh, at some point will be available uh, from an iPhone or, or an iPad. Uh, and um, we who are privileged enough to be in a university are all already used to having access now to almost all of uh, scholarly journals in the 
past 75 years. Uh, and that's obviously going to expand, and it's going to be a tremendous thing. I mean, it is sad to think nowadays you put so much work into a scholarly publication, and it might only be in some unaffordable journal that some handful of libraries carry, and no eyeballs are ever going to see it. Uh, the idea that it could be much more democratized uh, is very exciting. It's been, you know, not as if you make any money on it being uh, exclusive in the first place. So if everyone gets access to it, as long as we can figure out what to do with those journal publishers. Uh, likewise, in the case of the books, I mean, the, it is, I mean, the whole issue that we haven't raised at all is at what point does the excitement of digital access get uh, opposed by the lawyers and, and um, intellectual property holders uh, but that maybe that'll be well. You know, I think I think Steve, one thing I, I can't resist adding here is that I think the point that Steve raised earlier uh, is very important here. I mean, it does seem to me that that many of these remarkable possibilities are endangered not because of the luddite nature of humanists or because professors are <laughs> slow, but because there are economic and especially corporate interests that are interested in using the knowledge in very different ways. So the notion of an activist humanist, uh, one model of that would be Robert Darton, the wonderful librarian at Harvard, who was, even when he's wrong, I think he's helpful. Because I mean, I think he is sometimes wrong in his uh, notions about Google. But, he, but, he's mo- but, but, but he's a wonderful example of someone who's saying, look, uh, uh, these matters are too important to be decided by corporate uh, by, by corporate boards. There's a national, a public interest involved in how we make these decisions about uh, the ways in which the print culture migrates into digital form, and it's incumbent on all of us to argue for that. I think that's uh, profoundly important, and, and uh, I think a lot hinges on that. We can already see that images, for example, are much less accessible to scholars who want to use them than printed materials are. Uh, that's, uh, that's an unnecessary accident of the fact that very aggressive lawyers for Walt Disney Corporation and others have uh, extended copyright in ways that are, that are, that are very harmful. Uh, so there, there's a very modest example of the kind of problem. It's not restricted to the humanities, of course, but a critical one. Over here. I'm Ralph Lombrelli. I teach fiction writing here at MIT. Um, I'm kind of surprised this question hasn't come up. I'm sure you saw Nick Carr's Atlantic Monthly cover article a few years ago, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And he expanded it into a book, The Shallows, um, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. So the thesis of this basically is that there's sufficient neuroplasticity even in adults to change yourself to change ourselves cognitively, and that we are. Um, that, is we this are a, cha- that we are, we are changing. changing ourselves in the sense that um, a previous questioner mentioned sustained attention to a long article or to a long book versus attention to snippets that you can mash up. Is this a, a chicken little hysterical issue, or are we, are we changing ourselves, and should we be concerned about it? Because... If sustained attention to long works begins to um, erode, then obviously the humanities have a pretty big problem. Yeah, uh, I have writ- written about this, uh, and I think it is a chicken little uh, uh, fear. Um, 
the, bringing neuroplasticity is just a way of dressing up an argument with, I, I think, a, a pseudoscientific backing. I mean, anything that you do, anything that changes you is going to change your brain. Uh, the, the, to say, yes, Google is changing our brain. Everything we do changes our brain. Uh, so we can, and I say this as a brain scientist, let's leave the brain out of this. Uh, it it really adds so little to it and it is not the case that fundamental uh, properties of brain operation like um, the ability to multitask or the ability to hold things in long term memory changes as a result of whether you see things on a screen or on paper Um, also I think the, um, the, the popularity of Twitter which seems to be kind of symbolic encapsulation of people's fears of a limited, limited attention span. It's almost designed to make you think that that's the only way that people communicate. Well, there are tweets, but as far as I've noticed, there hasn't been a decline in, um, in book publication. There's still, you know, just last week, a 900-page biography of George Washington came out. Uh, I, um, the fact that sometimes you have things... Perhaps in, not by a tweeter, though. <laughs> maybe, maybe not, but, it's, uh, but I think it's selling well. Uh, I think we need to have information aggregated at multiple grain sizes. The information is increasing exponentially. You, uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Not everyone can read everything. Uh, we just none of it, we're all mortal. The uh, idea that uh, you have indexing services, abstracts, uh, pointers, links, ways in which you can get a sample of what's out there without um, avoiding the reading of long books or long texts, but also having access to the summaries and the capsules is uh, is, a, is a wonderful thing. I mean, if if we could only if, if we couldn't learn about anything other than by reading a nine hundred page book, we would be intellectually impoverished. There's just too much knowledge being created. So we need a, a mixed diet of links, tweets abstracts, short Wikipedia articles, and 900-page books. I'm saying that having just finished a 900-page, writing a 900-page book. So. I don't even know if I could read one in it. <laughs> we have two final questions. I was, just, I was interested in your discussion about the, compare, comparing American universities to um, international universities and how curriculum is developed, but I wondered um, with the acceleration of the the uh, the world is flat, basically. That we can really still have this difference, and that, that because Americans have to compete with uh, people coming out of China's universities with very specialized knowledge, if this is really something that uh, maybe the humanities we need to push onto high school, um, and because we have now this, I've seen reports about how much more um, less time students are spending in college than they did uh, 20 years ago. And maybe that's because they don't have to type as much and do as many manual kind of tedious administrative tasks and maybe have more time for thinking. So I just wanted to com- if you could comment on kind of maybe how high school and university will change as a result of the productivity increases and also our competitiveness. Thank you. I could, t- I could take a stab at just saying one um, 
aspect of your argument that I think is interesting has to do with the sort of productivity question and you know what, what college students do in the course of a year versus what they might have done 20 years ago. As someone who teaches and is an administrator at college, um, the students talk all the time about how they work much harder than students ever have in the past. And my recollection is that 20 years ago they were making the same argument. We have actually done sort of studies of, you know, ask them how much they do for each course, et cetera, and, and add it up. And what we do find is exactly as you described, that the sense is that the students are doing, are spending about the same amount of time that they have, you know, at certain kind of measurable points in the past, but they're spending it differently. They certainly still have plenty of time to play video games, to participate in athletic activities, to do lots of things, but they have a much uh, busier sense of their lives. They feel much more overwhelmed by busyness, and I think that that's part of our culture as a whole. But in thinking about how that educational system in America compares to what we have abroad and then compares to what they're coming out of in high school, I, I guess one observation I would make is that we do have our educational system is moving in a slightly more regimented direction because of you know all of the need uh, for assessment and accountability that is driving high school curricula to be very, very structured. And so students coming up through, um, through the ranks in college um, I think typically expect many more tests, quizzes, um, online discussions, lots of apparatus, lots of different grades because they're accustomed to having lots of those grading points. A lot of time gets spent in what you were calling kind of administrative stuff rather than the kind of long, thoughtful um, sorts of works that we might have, have um, asked students to produce in the past. When you compare that to what's happening in other countries, though it's tempting to say we're not competitive because they're more focused, everybody's trying to come here. You know, the, the fact that, that in most foreign countries it's very prestigious to send the top students to American universities suggests that other people have not dismissed that as a model. And so I think that, if anything, that the struggle will be to maintain the kind of space that's needed for the most thoughtful sort of learning and not be pushed too far into creating the sorts of structures that do become, you know, the typing of the future, the busy work that is not really necessary to learn. And also the reverse of what you've suggested has often been suggested about Asian education for example, uh, in the words, the fears that many people, that uh, in, uh, educators in China or in Japan have is precisely that they're producing students who were taught in a kind of empirical, rote learning way and they can't frame questions. They can't um, um, deal with the kinds of larger issues that, ha that, that you must confront when you actually go out into the workforce. So it doesn't work. It's on, so so the, the reverse of the argument is often made about the more regimented forms of education. I would certainly think that the notion that uh, the humanities should sort of uh, deliquesce into, <laughs> into the high schools is not, is not something that would be very helpful. <laughs> one, one more question. Here. I, no pressure being the last question, I guess. Um, <laughs> Uh, first of all, uh, my name is Mitch Smith. I'm, uh, I work in the interactive department at WGBH, but uh, more than that, I'm just a, a linguistics enthusiast, so <laughs> unashamedly. So. But um, the, I wanted to first just uh, comment and applaud Dr. Thornburg's observation that the, the idea of a crisis in, in humanities is really kind of an, has to be an overstatement. The, the, the academy for a thousand years has been based on humanities and then on conservation of information and, uh, and uh, really the humanities is the centerpiece no matter what, you know, what kind of innovation occurs it's really the cons conservative aspect of, uh, of the university that I'd like you to meet my dean I'd like you to meet my <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have a specific question for Dr. Pinker which is um, do you think to, to some extent that the, the perception of a crisis in the humanities is, could result from a nostalgia for methodologies 
applied to, to literary studies and hi, uh, history that um, are now being replaced with more empirical studies, especially in light of um, you know, the, the Pinker or the, sorry, the Chomsky-Skinner debate about what is data, uh, your things that projects you were involved in in terms of um, treating literary texts with um, on a bulk mass scale, and then I also think of uh, people like Hadros and uh, um, uh, treating poems as sort of um, uh, sources, not only sources of linguistic data, but also applying the tools of linguistics and scientific method to the analysis of, uh, of the works of masters of language. Yeah. The, in fact, uh, you mentioned Hadj Ross, a former colleague uh, at MIT who collaborated with uh, Jay Kaiser, who I mentioned as uh-huh. applying linguistic theory to uh, poetics. And they, they worked together on some of that. Uh, it's a good question. I don't know if, it's, if it is nostalgia for uh, older methodology, because I don't know how many inroads these interdisciplinary, uh, either hypothesis testing or synthetic uh, consilience between science and humanities have made any inroads. Um, so I'm not, I don't know if, it's, if, if uh, that's what's motivating the decline. Um, I think there's, there's certainly some dread, and some of the same people who are uh, bemoaning the decline of the uh, humanities are saying, well, whatever is going to rescue us, let it not be that. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure that that's uh, um, the the diagnosis. I mean, I think part of it is a, a fear that some of the exalted Eurocentric forms of art are getting less bandwidth than they used to. Uh, a lot of it was a reaction to the reaction to postmodernism, where the humanities became a target of ridicule and students were leaving in droves, and uh, there was some offense taken at that. Um, but not not being directly in the humanities, I wouldn't have as much insight as would be necessary to answer your question. I'd like to thank my panelists and especially thank the audience. <laughs>